Chapter 12, Part 1 of Haunted London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Esmeralda Fisher. Haunted London by Walter Thornberry. Drury Lane, Part 1. The roll of Battle Abbey tells us that the founder of the Drury family came into England with that brave Norman robber, the Conqueror, and settled in Suffolk. From this house branched off the Drurys of Halstead, in the same county, who built Drury House in the time of Elizabeth. It stood a little behind the site of the present Olympic Theatre. Of another branch of the same family was that Sir Drew Drury, who, together with Sir Amias Powlett, had at one time the custody of Mary, Queen of Scots. Drury Lane takes its name from a house probably built by Sir William Drury, a knight of the Garter, and a most able commander in the desultory Irish wars during the reign of Elizabeth, who fell in a duel with John Burroughs, fought to settle a foolish quarrel about some punctilio of precedency. In this house, in 1600, the imprudent friends of rash Essex resolved on the fatal outbreak that ended so lamentably at Ludget. The Earl of Southampton then resided there. The plots of Blunt, Davis, Davers, etc., were communicated to Essex by letter. It was noticed that at his trial, the Earl betrayed agitation at the mention of Drury House, though he had carefully destroyed all suspicious papers. Sir William's son Robert was a patron of Dr. Dunn, the religious poet and satirist, who in 1611 had apartments assigned to him and his wife in Drury House. Dunn, though the son of a man of some fortune, was foolish enough to squander his money when young, and in advanced life was so wanting in self-respect as to live about in other men's houses paying for his food and lodging by his wit in conversation. He lived first with Lord Chancellor Edgerton, Bacon's predecessor, afterwards at Drury House, and with Sir Francis Woolley at Pitford in Surrey. After his clandestine marriage with Lady Elsmere's niece, Dunn's life was for some time a hard and troublesome one. Sir Robert Drury, says Isaac Walton, a gentleman of a very noble estate and a more liberal mind, assigned Dunn and his wife a useful apartment in his own large house in Drury Lane, and rent-free. He was also a cherisher of his studies, and such a friend as sympathized with him and his in all their joys and sorrows. Sir Robert, wishing to attend Lord Hay as King James' ambassador at his audiences in Paris with Henry IV, begged Dunn to accompany him. But the poet refused, his wife being at the time near her confinement and in poor health, and saying that her divining soul boded some ill in his absence. But Sir Robert growing more urgent, and Dunn unwilling to refuse his generous friend a request, at last obtained from his wife a faint consent for a two months' absence. On the twelfth day the party reached Paris. Two days afterwards, Dunn was left alone in the room where Sir Robert and other friends had dined. 
Half an hour afterwards, Sir Robert returned and found Mr. Dunn still alone, but in such an ecstasy, and so altered in his looks, as amazed him. After a long and perplexed pause, Dunn said, I have had a dreadful vision since I saw you. I have seen my dear wife pass by me twice in this room, with her hair hanging about her shoulders and a dead child in her arms. To which Sir Robert replied, Sure, sir, you have slept since I saw you, and this is the result of some melancholy dream, which I desire you to forget, for you are now awake. Dunn assured his friend that he had not been asleep, and that on the second appearance his wife stopped, looked him in the face, and then vanished. The next day, however, neither rest nor sleep had altered Mr. Dunn's opinion, and he repeated the story with only a more deliberate and confirmed confidence. All this inclining Sir Robert to some faint belief, he instantly sent off a servant to Drury House to bring him word in what condition Mrs. Dunn was. The messenger returned in due time, saying that he had found Mrs. Dunn very sad and sick in bed, and that after a long and dangerous labor, she had been delivered of a dead child, and upon examination, the delivery proved to have been at the very day and hour in which Dunn had seen the vision. Walton is proud of this late miracle, so easily explainable by natural causes, and illustrates the sympathy of souls by the story of two lutes, one of which, if both are tuned to the same pitch, will, though untouched, echo the other when it is played. Far be it from me to wish to ridicule any man's belief in the supernatural, but still, as a lover of truth, wishing to believe what is, whether natural or supernatural, without confusing the former with the latter, let me analyze this pictured presentiment. An imaginative man, against his sick wife's wish, undertakes a perilous journey. Absent from her, alone, after wine and friendly revel, feeling still more lonely. In the twilight he thinks of home and the wife he loves so much. Dreaming, though awake, his fears resolve themselves into a vision, seen by the mind, and to the eye apparently vivid as reality. The day and hour happen to correspond, or he persuades himself afterwards that they do correspond with the result, and the daydream is henceforward ranked among supernatural visions. Who is there candid enough to write down the presentiments that do not come true? And after all, the vision, to be consistent, should have been followed by the death of Mrs. Dunn as well as the child. Some verses are pointed out by Isaac Walton as those written by Dunn on parting from her for this journey. But there is internal evidence in them to the contrary, for they refer to Italy, not to Paris, and to a lady who would accompany him as a page, which a lady in Mrs. Dunn's condition could scarcely have done. I have myself no doubt that the verses cited were written to his wife long before, when their marriage was as yet concealed. With what a fine vigor the poem commences. By our first strange and fatal interview, by all desires which thereof did ensue, by our long-striving hopes, by that remorse, which my words masculine persuasive force begot in thee, and by the memory, 
of hurts which spies and rivals threaten me. And how full of true feeling and passionate tenderness is their dramatic close. When I am gone, dream me some happiness. Nor let thy looks our long-hid love confess. Nor praise, nor dispraise me, nor bless, nor curse, openly love's force. Nor in bed fright thy nurse, with midnight startings, crying out, Oh, oh nurse, oh my love is slain. I saw him go over the white Alps alone. I saw him. I, assailed, taken, fight, stabbed, bleed, and die. The verses really written on Dunn's leaving for Paris begin with four exquisite lines. As virtuous men pass mild away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now, and some say no. A later verse contains a strange conceit beaten out into pin wire a page long by a modern poet. If we be two, we are two so, as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but does if t'other do. Dunn was the chief of what Dr. Johnson unwisely called the metaphysical school of poetry. Dryden accuses Dunn of perplexing the fair sex with nice speculations. His poems, often pious and beautiful, are sometimes distorted with strange conceits. He has a poem on a flea, and in his lines on Good Friday he thus whimsically expresses himself. Who sees God's face, that is, self-life, must die? What a death were it then to see God die? It made his own lieutenant, nature, shrink. It made his footstool crack and the sun wink. Could I behold those hands which span the poles, and tune all spheres at once, pierced with those holes? This imitator of the worst faults of Marini was made dean of St. Paul's by King James I, who delighted to converse with him. The king used to say, I always rejoice when I think that by my means Dunn became a divine. He gave the poet the deanery one day as he sat at dinner, saying that he would carve to him of a dish he loved well, and that he might take the dish, the deanery, home to his study, and say grace there to himself, and much good might it do him. Shortly before his death, Dunn dressed himself in his shroud, and standing there with his eyes shut and the sheet opened, to discover his thin, pale, and death-like face, he caused a curious painter to take his picture. This picture he kept near his bed as a ghostly remembrance, and from this Nicholas Stone, the sculptor, carved his effigy, which still exists in St. Paul's. Having survived the great fire, though the rest of his tomb and monument has perished. Drury House took the name of Craven House when rebuilt by Lord Craven. There is a tradition in Yorkshire, where the deanery of Craven is situated, that this chivalrous nobleman's father was sent up to London by the carrier, and there became a mercer, or draper. His son was not unworthy of the staunch old Yorkshire stock, he fought under Gustavus Adolphus against Wallenstein and Tilly, 
and afterwards attached himself to the service of the unfortunate king and queen of Bohemia, and won wealth and a title for his family, which the Wars of the Roses had first reduced to indigence. The Queen of Bohemia had been married in 1613 to Frederick, Count Palatine of the Rhine, only a few months after the death of Prince Henry, her brother. The young King of Spain had been her suitor, and the Pope had opposed her match with the Protestant. She was married on St. Valentine's Day, and Dunn, from his study in Drury Lane, celebrated the occasion by a most extravagant epithalamian in which is to be found this outrageous line. Here lies a she-sun and a he-moon there. The poem opens prettily enough with these lines. Hail, Bishop Valentine, whose day this is. All the air is thy diocese, and all the chirping choristers and other birds are thy parishioners. Thou marriest every year, the lyric lark and the grave whispering dove. At seventeen, Sir William Craven had entered the service of the Prince of Orange. On the accession of Charles I, he was ennobled. At the storming of Croisnock, he was the first of the English cavaliers to mount the breach and plant the flag. It was then that Gustavus said smilingly to him, I perceive, sir, you are willing to give a younger brother a chance of coming to your title and estate. At Donovert, the young Englishman again distinguished himself. In the same month that Gustavus fell at Lutzen, the Elector Palatine died at Mentz. While Grotius interceded for the Queen of Bohemia, Lord Craven fought for her in the vineyards of the Palatinate. In consequence, perhaps, of Richelieu's intrigues, four years elapsed before Charles I took compassion on the children of his widowed sister, whose cause the Puritans had loudly advocated. When Charles and Rupert did go to England, they went under the care of the trusty Lord Craven, who was to try to recover the arrears of the widow's pension. On their return to Germany, to campaign in Westphalia, Rupert and Lord Craven were taken prisoners and thrown into the castle at Vienna, a confinement that lasted three years, a long time for brave young soldiers who, like the Douglas, preferred the lark's song to the mouse's squeak. Later in the Civil War, we find this same generous nobleman giving 50,000 pounds to King Charles, at a time when he was a beggar and a fugitive. Cromwell, enraged at the aid thus ministered to an enemy, accused the cavalier of enlisting volunteers for the steward, and instantly, with stern promptitude, sequestered all his English estates except Combe Abbey. In the meantime, Lord Craven served the state and his queen bravely, and waited for better times. It was this faithful servant who consoled the royal widow for her son's ill treatment, the slander heaped upon her daughter, and the incessant vexations of importunate creditors. The restoration brought no good news for the unfortunate queen. Charles, afraid of her claims for a pension, delayed her return to England, till the Earl of Craven generously offered her a house next his own in Drury Lane. She found there a pleasant and commodious mansion, surrounded by a delightful garden. It does not appear that she went publicly to court, or joined in the royal revelries, 
but she visited the theaters with her nephew Charles and her good old friend and host, and she was reunited to her son Rupert. In the autumn of 1661, the year after the Restoration, she moved to Leicester House, then the property of Sir Robert Sidney, Earl of Leicester, and in the next February she died. Evelyn mentions a violent, tempestuous wind that followed her death as a sign from heaven to show that the troubles and calamities of this princess and of the royal family in general had now all blown over and were, like the ex-queen, to rest in repose. She left all her books, pictures, and papers to her incomparable old friend and benefactor. The Earl of Leicester wrote to the Earl of Northumberland a cold and flippant letter to announce the departure of his royal tenant, and adds, It seems the fates did not think it fit I should have the honor, which indeed I never much desired, to be the landlord of a queen. Charles, who had grudged the dethroned queen, even her subsistence, gave her a royal funeral in Westminster Abbey. At the very time when she died, Lord Craven was building a miniature Heidelberg for her at Hampstead Marshall in Berkshire, under the advice of that eminent architect and charlatan, Sir Balthazar Gerbier. But the palace was ill-fated, like the poor queen, for it was consumed by an accidental fire before it could be tenanted. The arrival of the Portuguese Infanta, a princess scarcely less unfortunate than the queen just dead, soon erased all recollections of King James' ill-starred daughter. The biographers of the Queen of Bohemia do not claim for her beauty, wit, learning, or accomplishments, but she seems to have been an affectionate, romantic girl, full of vivacity and ambition, who was ripened by sorrow and disappointment into an amiable and high-souled woman. It was always supposed that the Queen of Bohemia was secretly married to Lord Craven, as Bassompierre was to a princess of Lorraine. A base and abandoned court could not otherwise account for a friendship so unchangeable and so unselfish. There is also a story that when Craven House was pulled down, a subterranean passage was discovered joining the eastern and western sides. Similar passages have been found joining convents to monasteries, but unfortunately for the scandalmongers, they are generally proved to have been either sewers or conduits. The Queen of Hearts, as she was called, the princess to whose cause the chivalrous Christian of Brunswick, the knight with the silver arm, had solemnly devoted his life and fortunes, the royal mistress to whom shifty Sir Henry Wotton had written those beautiful lines. You meaner beauties of the night, that poorly entertain our eyes, more by your number than your light. What are ye when the moon doth rise? Was at last gone to dust. Her faithful servant, the old soldier of Gustavus, survived her thirty-five years, and lived to follow to the grave his foster child in arms, Prince Rupert, whose daughter Ruperta was left to his trusty guardianship. In 1670, on the death of the stolid and drunken Duke of Albemarle, Charles II constituted Lord Craven Colonel of the Coldstreams. Energetic, simple-hearted, benevolent, this good servant of a bad race became a member of the Royal Society, 
lived in familiar intimacy with Evelyn and Ray, improved his property, and employed himself in gardening. Although he had many estates, Lord Craven always showed the most predilection for Combe Abbey, the residence of the Queen of Bohemia in her youth. To judge by the numerous dedications to which his name is prefixed, he would appear to have been a munificent patron of letters, especially of those authors who had been favorites of Elizabeth of Bohemia. On the accession of James, Lord Craven, true as ever, was sworn of the Privy Council, but soon after, on some mean suspicion of the king, was threatened with the loss of his regiment. If they take away my regiment, said the staunch old soldier, they had as good take away my life, since I have nothing else to divert myself with. In the hurry of the popish catastrophe, it was not taken away, but King William proved Craven's loyalty to the Stuarts by giving his regiment to General Talmesh. The unemployed officer now expended his activity in attending riots and fires. Long before, when the Puritan prentices had pulled down the houses of ill fame in Wetton Park and in Moorfields, Pepys had described the colonel as riding up and down like a madman, giving orders to his men. Later, Lord Dorset had spoken of the old soldier's energy in a gay ballad on his mistress. The people's hearts leap wherever she comes, and beat day and night like my Lord Craven's drums. In King William's reign, the veteran was so prompt in attending fires that it used to be said his horse smelt a fire as soon as it broke out. Lord Craven died unmarried in 1697, aged 88, and was buried at Binley, near Coventry. The grandson of a Wharfdale peasant had ended a well-spent life. His biographer, Miss Benger, well remarks, If his claims to disinterestedness be contemned of men, let his cause be left to female judges, to whose honor be it averred, Examples of nobleness, generosity, and magnanimity are ever delightful, because to their purer and more susceptible souls, they are never incredible. Drury House was rebuilt by Lord Craven after the Queen's death. It occupied the site of Craven Buildings and the Olympic Theatre. Pennant, ever curious and energetic, went to find it, and describes it in his pleasant way as a large brick pile then turned into a public house bearing the sign of the Queen of Bohemia, faithful still to the worship of its old master. The house was taken down in 1809, when the Olympic Pavilion was built on part of its gardens. The cellars, once stored with good Rhenish from the Palatinate and sack from Cadiz, still exist, but have been blocked up. Paul's Grave Place, near Temple Bar, perpetuates the memory of the unlucky husband of the brave princess. It was Lord Craven who generously founded pest houses in Carnaby Street, soon after the Great Plague. There were 36 small houses and a cemetery. They were sold in 1772 to William, 3rd Earl of Craven, for 1,200 pounds. It may be remembered that in the memoirs of Scribblerus, a room is hired for the dissection of the purchased body of a malefactor, near the St. Giles Pestfields, and not far from Tyburn Road, Oxford Street. The Earl was their founder. On the end wall at the bottom of Craven Buildings, there was formerly a large fresco painting of the Earl of Craven, 
who was represented in armor, mounted on a charger, and with a truncheon in his hand. This portrait had been twice or thrice repainted in oil, but in Braley's time was entirely obliterated. This fresco is said to have been the work of Paul Vansomer, a painter who came to England from Antwerp about 1606 and died in 1621. He painted the Earl and Countess of Arundel, and there are pictures by him at Hampton Court. He also executed the pleasant and quaint hunting scene, with portraits of Prince Henry and the young Earl of Essex, now at St. James' Palace. Mr. Moser, keeper of the Royal Academy, a chaser of plate, cane heads, and watch cases, afterwards an enameler of watch trinkets, necklaces, and bracelets, lived in Craven Buildings, which were built in 1723 on part of the site of Craven House. He died in his apartments in Somerset House in 1783. It was in Short's Gardens, Drury Lane, in a hole that Charles Matthews the Elder made one of his first attempts as an actor. Clare House Court, on the left hand going up Drury Lane, derived its name from John Hollis, second Earl of Clare, whose townhouse stood at the end of this court. His son Gilbert, the third Earl, died in 1689 and was succeeded by his son, John Hollis, created Marquis of Clare and Duke of Newcastle in 1694. He died in 1711 when all his honors became extinct. The corner house has upon it the date 1693. In the reign of James I, when Gondomar, the Spanish ambassador, lived at Eli House in Holborn, he used to pass through Drury Lane in his litter on his way to Whitehall, Covent Garden being then an enclosed field, and this district and the Strand the chief resorts of the gentry. The ladies, knowing his hours, would appear in their balconies or windows to present their civilities to the old man, who would bend himself as well as he could to the humblest posture of respect. One day, as he passed by the house of Lady Jacob in Drury Lane, she presented herself. He bowed to her, but she only gaped at him. Curious to see if this yawning was intentional or accidental, he passed the next day at the same hour, and with the same result, upon which he sent a gentleman to her to let her know that the ladies of England were usually more gracious to him than to encounter his respects with such affronts. She answered that she had a mouth to be stopped as well as others. Gondomar, finding the cause of her distemper, sent her a present, an antidote which soon cured her of her strange complaint. This Lady Jacob became the wife of the poet Brooke. That credulous gossip, the Wiltshire gentleman Aubrey, tells a quaint story of a duel in Drury Lane in probably Charles II's time, which is a good picture of such rencontre amongst the hot-blooded bravos of that wild period. Captain Carlo Phantom, a Croatian, he says, who spoke thirteen languages, was a captain under the Earl of Essex. He had a world of cuts about his body with swords, and was very quarrelsome. He met, coming late at night, out of the Horseshoe Tavern in Drury Lane, with a lieutenant of Colonel Rossiter, who had great jingling spurs on. Said he, The noise of your spurs do offend me. You must come over the kennel and give me satisfaction. They drew and passed at each other, 
and the lieutenant was run through, and died in an hour or two, and was not known who killed him. About this time, John Lacey, Charles II's favorite comedian, the Falstaff of Dryden's time, lived in Drury Lane from 1665 till his death in 1681. The ex-dancing master and lieutenant dwelt near Cradle Alley and only two doors from Lord Anglesey. Drury Lane, though it soon began to deteriorate, had fashionable inhabitants in Charles II's time. Evelyn, that delightful type of the English gentleman, mentions in his diary the marriage of his niece to the eldest son of Mr. Attorney Montague at Southampton Chapel, and talks of a magnificent entertainment at his sister's lodgings in Drury Lane. Steele, however, branded its disreputable districts. Gay warned us against Drury's mazy courts and dark abodes, and Pope laughed at building a church for the saints of Drury Lane, and derided its proud and paltry drabs. This little sour poet, snugly off and well housed, delighted to sneer with the cruel and ungenerous contempt at the poverty of the poor Drury Lane poet who wrote for instant bread. Nine years, cries he, who, high in Drury Lane, lulled by soft zephyrs through the broken pane, rhymes ere he wakes and prints before term ends, obliged by hunger and request of friends. To ridicule poverty and to treat misfortune as a punishable crime is the special opprobrium of too many of the heroes of English literature. Hogarth has shown us the poor poet of Drury Lane, Goldsmith has painted for us the poor author, but in a kindlier way, for he must have remembered how poor he himself and Dr. Johnson, Savage, Otway, and Lee had been. Pope, in his notes to the Dunciad, expressly says that the poverty of his enemies is the cause of all their slander. Poverty with him is another name for vice and all uncleanness. Goldsmith only laughs as he describes the poor poet in Drury Lane in a garret, snug from the bailiff, and opposite a public house famous for Calvert's beer and Parson's black champagne. The windows are dim and patched, the floor is sanded, the damp walls are hung with the royal game of goose, the twelve rules of King Charles, and a black profile of the Duke of Cumberland. The rusty grate has no fire. The mantelpiece is chalked with long unpaid scores of beer and milk. There are five cracked teacups on the chimney board, and the poet meditates over his epics and his finances with a stocking round his brows instead of bay. Early in the reign of William III, Drury Lane finally lost all traces of its aristocratic character. Vinegar Yard in Drury Lane was originally called Vine Garden Yard. Vine Street, Piccadilly, Vine Street, Westminster, and Vine Street, Saffron Hill all derived their names from the vineyards they displaced. But there is great reason to suppose that in the Middle Ages, orchards and herb gardens were often classified carelessly as vineyards. English grapes might produce a sour, thin wine, but there was never a time when homemade wine superseded the produce of Montvoisin, Bordeaux, or Gascon. Vinegar Yard was built about 1621. In St. Martin's burial register there is an entry, 1624, February 4th, buried blind John out of Vinegar Yard. 
Clayrender's letter in Smollett's Roderick Random is written to her dear creature from Vinegar Yard, Drury Lane. This fair charmer must surely have lived not far from Mr. Dickens' inimitable Mrs. Megby. The nearness of Vinegar Yard to the theater is alluded to by James Smith in his parody on Sir Walter Scott in The Rejected Addresses. General Monk's gross and violent wife was the daughter of his servant, John Clarks, a farrier in the Savoy. Her mother, says Aubrey, was one of the five women barbers that lived in Drury Lane. She kept a glove shop in the New Exchange before her marriage, and as a seamstress used to carry the general's linen to him when he was in the tower. Pepys hated her because she was jealous of his patron, Lord Sandwich, and called him a coward. He calls her ill-looking and a plain, homely dowdy, and says that one day when Monk was drunk, and sitting with Troutbeck, a disreputable fellow, the Duke was wondering that Nan Hyde, a brewer's daughter, should ever have come to be Duchess of York. Nay, said Troutbeck, ne'er wonder at that, for if you will give me another bottle of wine, I will tell you as great if not a greater miracle, and that was that our dirty Bess should come to be Duchess of Albemarle. Nell Gwynne was born in Coal Yard on the east side of Drury Lane, the next turning to the infamous Lukner Lane, which used to be inhabited by the Orange Girls, who attended the theaters in Charles II's reign. It was in this same lane that Jonathan Wilde, the thief-taker, whom Fielding immortalizes, afterwards lived. In a coarse and ruthless satire written by Sir George Etheridge after Nell's death, the poet calls her a scoundrel lass, raised from a dunghill, born in a cellar, and brought up as a cinder wench in a coal yard. Nellie was the vagabond daughter of a poor cavalier captain and fruiterer who is said to have died in prison at Oxford. She began life by selling fish in the street, then turned orange girl at the theaters, was promoted to be an actress, and finally became a mistress of Charles II. Though not as savage-tempered as the infamous Lady Castlemaine, Nellie was almost as mischievous and quite as shameless. She obtained from the king 60,000 pounds in four years. She bought a pearl necklace at Prince Rupert's sale for 4,000 pounds. She drank, swore, gambled, and squandered money as wildly as her rivals. Nellie was small, with a good-humored face, and eyes that winked when she laughed. She was witty, reckless, and good-natured. The portrait of her by Lily, with a lamb under her arm, shows us a very arch, pretty, dimply little actress. The present Duke of St. Albans is descended from her. In 1667, Nell Gwynne was living in Drury Lane, for on May Day of that year, Pepys says, To Westminster, in the way meeting many milkmaids with garlands upon their pails, dancing with the fiddler between them, and saw pretty Nellie standing at her lodging's door in Drury Lane, in her smock-sleeves and bodice, looking upon one. She seemed a mighty pretty creature. Nellie had not then been long on the stage, and Pepys had hissed her a few months before being introduced to her by dangerous Mrs. Nip. In 1671, Evelyn saw Nellie, then living in Pall Mall, looking out of her garden on a terrace at the top of the wall, and talking too familiarly to the king, 
who stood on the green walk in the park below. Poor Nell was not allowed to starve, but ended an ill life by dying of apoplexy. There is no authority for the name of Nell Gwynne's dairy given to a house near the Adelphi. That infamous and perjured scoundrel and the murderer of so many innocent men, Titus Oates, was the son of a popular Baptist preacher in Ratcliffe Highway and was educated at Merchant Taylor's. Dismissed from the fleet, of which he was chaplain for infamous practices, he became a Jesuit at St. Omer's and came back to disclose the sham popish plot, for which atrocious lie he received of the Roman Catholic King Charles II, 1,200 pounds a year, an escort of guards, and a lodging in Whitehall. Oates died in 1705. He lodged for some time in Cockpit Alley, now called Pit Place. It was in the Crown Tavern, next the Whistling Oyster, and close to the south side of Drury Lane Theatre, that Punch was first projected by Mr. Mark Lemon and Mr. Henry Mayhew in 1841, and its first number was prepared for press in a back room in Newcastle Street, Strand. Great rivers often have their sources in swampy and obscure places, and our good-natured satirist has not much to boast of in its birthplace. To Punch, Tom Hood contributed his immortal song of the shirt and Tennyson his scorching satire against Bulwer and his new Timon. Almost from the first, Leech devoted to it his humorous pencil, and Albert Smith his perennial store of good humor and drollery. Amongst its other early contributors should be mentioned Mr. Gilbert A. Abeckett, Mr. W. H. Wills, and Douglas Gerald. Zoffany, the artist, lived for some time in poverty in Drury Lane. Mr. Audenay, father of Philip Audenay the engraver, served his time with the celebrated clockmaker Rimbaud, who lived in Great St. Andrew Street, Seven Dials. This worthy excelled in the construction of the clocks called at that time Twelve-Tuned Dutchmen, which were contrived with moving figures, engaged in a variety of employments. The pricking of the barrels of those clocks was performed by Bellotti, an Italian, who lived hard by, in Short's Gardens, Drury Lane. This person solicited Rimbaud in favor of a starving artist who dwelt in a garret in his house. Let him come to me, said Rimbaud. Accordingly, Zoffany waited upon the clockmaker and produced some specimens of his art, which were so satisfactory that he was immediately set to work to embellish clock faces and paint appropriate backgrounds to the puppets upon them. From clock faces, the young painter proceeded to the human face divine, and at last resolved to try his hand upon the visage of the worthy clockmaker himself. He hit off the likeness of the patron so successfully that Rimbaud exerted himself to serve and promote him. Benjamin Wilson, the portrait painter, who at that time lived at 56 Great Russell Street, a house afterwards inhabited by Philip Audenay, being desirous of procuring an assistant who could draw the figure well, and being, like Lawrence, deficient in all but the head, found out the ingenious painter of clock faces, and engaged him at the moderate salary of forty pounds a year, with an especial injunction to secrecy. In this capacity, he worked upon a picture of Garrick and Miss Bellamy in Romeo and Juliet, which was exhibited under the name of Wilson. 
Garrick's keen eye satisfied him that another hand was in the work, so he resolved to discover the unknown painter. This discovery he effected by perseverance. He made the acquaintance of Zoffany and became his patron, employing him himself and introducing him to his friends. And in this way, his bias to theatrical portraiture became established. Garrick's favor met with an ample return in the admirable portraits of himself and contemporaries, which have rendered their personal appearance so speakingly familiar to posterity both in his pictures and the admirable mezzotinto scrapings of Erlam. Zoffany was elected among the first members of the Royal Academy in 1768. The old cockpit, or Phoenix Theatre, stood on the site of what is now called Pitt Place. Early in James I's reign, it had been turned into a playhouse and probably rebuilt. On Shrove Tuesday, 1616, the London Prentices roused to their annual zeal by a love of mischief and probably a Puritan fervor, sacked the building to the discomfiture of the harmless players. Bitter, narrow-headed Prynne, who notes with horror and anger the 40,000 plays printed in two years for the Five Devil's Chapels in London, describes the cockpit as demoralizing Drury Lane, then no doubt wealthy, and therefore supposed to be respectable. In 1647, the cockpit theater was turned into a schoolroom. In 1649, Puritan soldiers broke into the house, which had again become a theater, captured the actors, dispersed the audience, broke up the seats and stage, and carried off the dramatic criminals in open day, in all their stage finery, to the gatehouse at Westminster. Rhodes, the old prompter at Blackfriars, who had turned bookseller, reopened the cockpit on the restoration. The new theater in Drury Lane opened in 1663 with the humorous lieutenant of Beaumont and Fletcher. This was the king's company under Killigrew. Davenant and the Duke of York's company found a home first in the cockpit and afterwards in Salisbury Court, Fleet Street. The first Drury Lane Theatre was burnt down in 1672. Wren built the new house, which opened in 1674 with the prologue by Dryden. Sibber gives a careful account of Wren's Drury Lane, the chief entrance to which was down Playhouse Passage. Pepys blamed it for the distance of the stage from the boxes, and for the narrowness of the pit entrances. The platform of the stage projected very forward, and the lower doors of entrance for the actors were in the place of the stage boxes. In 1681, the two companies united, leaving Portugal Street to the lithe tennis players and Dorset Gardens to the brawny wrestlers. Wren's Theatre was taken down in 1791. Its successor, built by Holland, was opened in 1794 and destroyed in 1809. The present edifice, the fourth in succession, is the work of Wyatt and was opened in 1812. Hart, Moen, Burt, and Clune were all actors in Kilgrew's company. Hart, who had been a captain in the army, was dignified as Alexander, incomparable as Catiline, and excellent as Othello. He died in 1683. Moen, whom Nat Lee wrote parts for, and who had been a major in the Civil War, was much applauded in heroic parts, and was a favorite of Rochester's. Bert played Cicero in Ben Jonson's Catiline, and poor Clune, who was murdered by footpads in Kentish Town, was great as Iago, and as subtle in The Alchemist.
From Peep's memoranda of visits to Drury Lane, we gather a few facts about the licentious theater-goers of his day. After the plague, when Drury Lane had been deserted, the old gossip went there, half ashamed to be seen, and with his cloak thrown up round his face. The king flaunts about with his mistresses, and Peeps goes into an upper box to chat with the actresses and see a rehearsal, which seems then to have followed and not preceded the daily performance. He describes Sir Charles Sedley in the pit, exchanging banter with a lady in a mask. Three o'clock seems to have been about the time for theater's opening. The king was angry, he says, with Ned Howard for writing a play called The Change of Crowns, in which Lacey acted a country gentleman who is astonished at the corruption of the court. For this, Lacey was committed to the porter's lodge. On being released, he called the author a fool, and having a glove thrown in his face, returned the compliment with a blow on Howard's pate with a cane, upon which the pit wondered that Howard did not run the mean fellow through, and the king closed the house, which the gentry thought had grown too insolent. August 15, 1667, Pepys goes to see the Merry Wives of Windsor, which pleased our great admiralty official in no part of it. Two days after, he weeps at the troubles of Queen Elizabeth, but revives when that dangerous Mrs. Nip dances among the milkmaids and comes out in her nightgown to sing a song. Another day he goes at three o'clock to see Beaumont and Fletcher's scornful lady, but does not remain, as there is no one in the pit. In September of the same year he finds his wife and servant in an eighteen-penny seat. In October 1667 he ventures into the tiring room where Nell was dressing, and then had fruit in the scene room, and heard Mrs. Nip read her part in Flora's vagaries, Nell cursing because there were so few people in the pit. A fortnight after he contrives to see a new play, The Black Prince, by Lord Orrery, and though he goes at two, finds no room in the pit, and has for the first time in his life to take an upper four-shilling box. November 1st, he proclaims The Taming of the Shrew a silly old play. November 2nd, the house was full of Parliament men, the house being up, one of them choking himself while eating some fruit. Orange Maul thrust her finger down his throat and brought him to life again. Pepys condemns Nell Gwynne as unbearable in serious parts, but considers her beyond imitation as a madwoman. In December 1667, he describes a poor woman who had lent her child to the actors, but hearing him cry, forced her way onto the stage and bore it off from heart. It would seem from subsequent notes in the diary that to a man who stopped only for one act at a theater and took no seat, no charge was made. End of Haunted London, Chapter 12, Part 1